In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Now I have a confession to make this morning. I'm a terrible artist. Part of it is I was part of that last generation of children when we put things in our left hand, they were promptly moved to our right hands, and occasionally a ruler came out and was told not to, use, not to do that. I can sign both directions with my signature and make it look like I'm a doctor. Now, over the years, I've learned how to use a camera well enough, thanks to classes and experience, to not embarrass myself. But if I ever take a truly great picture, trust me, it's as much a surprise to me as it is to anybody else. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. God is calling Jeremiah to leave his domain, the temple, a place of liturgy and worship, a place of prayer and proclamation, and sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house. Now, I will admit, as a teenager and as a child, when I heard this story, I always imagined Jeremiah was just like me. We, we share a first name, right? That Jeremiah was down there watching in awe, just like I do when I see a great artist doing their thing. But God wants to use an object lesson with him this morning. I think he needs to push him out of his comfort zone a bit. Now realize that this is an illustration. God is trying to explain in ways we understand how things work while we're looking through that dimly lit mirror. Don't take it too far. But Jeremiah walks in and sees the potter already at work. And he writes, The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in a potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel that seemed good to him. So he goes and he sees the potter hard at work and mistakes made. Now, in my limited experience with pottery in art class, if I make a mistake, we're going back to a big ball of clay and trying again. There's no way that I'm gonna be able to do anything other than that with a mistake. And I know that some of you here are more crafty or maybe artsy or just more dexterous or experienced. But where I would have to start over, I've watched Master Potters take it. And they had this design that they wanted it to look like. And when there's a mistake, when something goes wrong, they're able to shape that clay into something else. And it still ends up being a vase or a pot, but not the one that they were originally trying to make. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, look, I'm a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. God says here, and Paul likes to use this illustration in one of his epistles, that God is like the potter. He had plans, but they've not turned out the way that he wanted them to. And because of that, he's got a different plan. Now, why did this happen? Because the clay, his people, are not following the path that he wanted them to go on. But all he wants them to do right now is to do something very simple, to change. If they'll change, then like a master potter, God's plan for them will change. He's warning them to say that the contours of what he's crafting right now, his judgment, can turn into redemption. But God is saying here there's an element that depends on them. The clay has to go in the direction it's being shaped. And I know this from art classes, that you can keep adjusting the clay until you put it into the kiln, into the fire. And after it's been fired, the change is much harder. 
In, Jer- in Jeremiah, God is calling out for them to change, to repair their relationship to him and to each other before it's too late. Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You've known my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from far away. David writes something that we all know, that God knows. He knows our thoughts, our actions, our motivations. And David's writing hundreds of years before Jeremiah. The people Jeremiah are preaching to, the ones that he serves in the temple as a priest, have heard, they've read, and they've sung this psalm at worship for years. They know this. They acknowledge it. They know that God knows us in a way that seems impossible to know anyone else. You press upon me behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So high I cannot attain it. But God not only knows us intimately, he's there for us. Now I've experienced times in my life where it feels like God is far away. Where like in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy describes prayer sometimes as feeling like the heavens are made of brass. And everything just bounces right off. But we can be reassured that this is just our feelings and our circumstances. God is still always near to us. How deep I find your thoughts, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more in number than the sand. To count them all, my lifespan would need to be like yours. David here is admitting he does not. He cannot understand everything of what God is thinking and doing. It says outside his ability to comprehend, he knows it. He admits he can't even count all the thoughts that God has. Just to try would take a limitless amount of time. But the good news this morning is that same God sent his son of the same nature as the father to be incarnated into human form. In our gospel this morning we read, Large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Last week we read how Jesus is still on the road to Jerusalem. He spoke last week about how his guests were to act at parties. And after that he told them a parable about a great banquet where all the invited guests had excuses as to why they couldn't come. They had weddings and marriages. They had other things. Even though they had the invitation, although it seems like they already RSVP'd, they were coming. When the day came, no one showed up. And when he sends his people out to, to make sure the guests find out why they're not there, and they come back and report, he says, fine then, send them, send, go out to the highways and the byways. Find all of those people who normally we wouldn't invite the forgotten, those that are in hiding from good folk, invite them to come and to be at the banquet instead. And this morning we read that Jesus said we should hate those we're closest to. How does all of that work? Jesus here has come to bring change. And I think that what he's trying to say here is that your idea of family, which is the center of the ancient universe, your family would disown you for things, right? We see this today. And by being disowned, sometimes you're taking your life in your own hands. They may just cast you out and not support you anymore. They may decide to go farther. We still see, we still read about it today. Jesus reminds them that his teachings have to take precedence, even over our family, even over how we were raised. And those kind of changes can be very hard to make. 
Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20? He gives several illustrations here about how following Christ may cost you things and how we should consider it. Last week he said it was an exchange of meals. Listen, you can't, don't just invite the people that can afford to pay you back so that you don't have to cook for a couple of weeks after you throw a party. This week it's the very real cost of living the way Jesus wants us to live. So therefore none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. Jesus is calling them to give up everything that matters to them in this world. Their possessions, their pride, their vengeance. And to follow him instead. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. The Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. Aphia, our sister. And Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church in your house. And this morning we read in one of those rare instances where we sit down and read an entire book of the Bible in one sitting. We read Paul asking for this to be lived out. Paul and Timothy are writing Philemon, a leader in the Colossian church. He obviously has some wealth because the entire church can afford to meet in his house. His house is big enough to have a church service in. And Paul's writing during his imprisonment, those years in the book of Acts where he's under guard in Caesarea or Rome. And he sends his love back to Colossae, to Philemon and the whole church. For this reason, though, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and also as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But Paul has a request, and it's a big one. He knows he could use his authority as an apostle in order Philemon to do what he could, wants him to do. But instead of having him do it out of obedience and fear, he asks him this morning to do it in love. I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. It appears that Onesimus and Paul are prisoners together. And during his time in prison with Paul, he's come to Christ. He's an escaped slave. He's run from Colossae and somehow is either in Caesarea or in Rome. So he's run a far distance. And it appears from what Paul writes that he also may have stolen from Philemon. Otherwise, why is Paul asking him to put it to his account? I want to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. So Paul, when Onesimus gets his freedom, sends him back to Philemon with this request. Why? First off, it's the legal thing to do. He should go back. But Paul doesn't want just blind obedience to the law. He wants Philemon to forgive him. And not just forgive him, but to free him so that he can join with Paul and his companions and spread the gospel. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now it's easy to stand here at a distance of 2,000 years or so and judge the request. But think for a minute about your own life. I could name some people in my lifetime who have done and said things to me that have made it hard for me to forgive them. Don't think I'm the only one this morning. We're broken people and we live in a broken world. 
But Jesus calls us to forgive and love everyone. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul knows him. He knows Philemon. He knows that he's going to pray and do the things that Paul's asked because it's the right thing to do. This morning, let's spend a few minutes examining our own hearts and prayerfully consider if there's anyone that we need to ask forgiveness of. Amen.